1: You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Suddenly someone cried out that there was cavalry coming down upon us. "Pooh," cried Colonel McIntosh, who the devil cares for cavalry? Here you rifles, take your positions along that fence and send them to the right about. This was addressed to our company and we ran and took up position. We saw the cavalry advancing upon us, but before they came within range of our rifles, a shower of grape and shrapnels from Woodruff's battery sent them to the right about. William Watson, 3rd Louisiana, at the Battle of Wilson's Creek.
2: Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode number 48 of our Civil War Podcast. I'm Rich.
0: And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all, welcome to the podcast. After using the last several episodes to talk about infantry, this week we're going to talk about another one of the Civil War Combat Arms, the Cavalry.
2: At the start of the war, many recruits on both sides who joined the cavalry imagined that their own experiences would mirror the exciting stories they had heard about the Napoleonic Wars 50 years before. Stirring stories of masses of saber-swinging riders charging one another, or thrilling tales of cavalry relentlessly pursuing broken infantry across the countryside. Northern and Southern horsemen, however, quickly learned that the reality of combat in their war seldom matched that Napoleonic ideal.
0: That's mostly because by 1861, modern weapons had made the mounted cavalry charge virtually obsolete. By the time a mounted unit got close enough to a dismounted formation to engage it with sabers, it had already been torn apart by cannon or rifle or carbine fire. As a result, the mounted charge against troops on foot was largely abandoned during the Civil War.
2: In Napoleonic armies, the cavalry had undeniably been the premier combat arm. But in the Union and Confederate armies, that was no longer the case. The cavalry was no longer top dog. Now don't get us wrong, mounted soldiers still had important roles to play during the Civil War. But the lack of a true cavalry tradition in the United States the nature of the terrain on most Civil War battlefields, the improvement in weaponry, all dictated major changes in roles and tactics for Union and Confederate horse soldiers. And so there's no denying that between 1861 and 1865, the cavalry, rather than being the premier combat arm employed on a battlefield, instead had to take a back seat to the infantry and the artillery.
0: Despite the fact that it wasn't top dog on the battlefield anymore, one of the most romantic aspects of the Civil War in general, and the Confederacy in particular, was the cavalry. A Southerner was, on average, considered the superior horseman mounted on a better horse, especially early in the conflict. At least for the first half of the Civil War, these Southern horsemen consistently outperformed their opponents. Despite their later difficulties, several factors account for the initial advantage the Confederate cavalry enjoyed over its Union counterpart. One was the exposure most white Southerners had to horses, as well as the quality of the animals themselves. Roads in the rural South were often poor, and horses were more often used for individual transportation, whereas in the North, wagons, carriages, or even streetcars were more the norm, and so a generation of Northern farmers and townsmen had become more accustomed to sitting behind rather than on the horses.
2: Thus, in the South, there was a greater proportion of men who regarded the horse as a necessary part of everyday life, Many southerners were accomplished riders from boyhood. Although many northern farmers could ride, they mostly kept their horses for pulling a plow. In the south, in the years before the Civil War, young men often organized themselves into mounted militia companies. Apart from the popular social aspects of such units, they also regularly patrolled the roads around their local communities watching for runaway slaves.
0: A second factor that accounts for the initial advantage of Southern horsemen was the organization of the Confederate cavalry as independent formations. By contrast, Union cavalry was not especially well used in the early days of the war, and they were rarely organized into large, independent formations. Confederate commanders from the very beginning of the war showed more wisdom in grouping their cavalry into large fighting formations. For example, as early as September 1861 in Virginia, Jeb Stuart was promoted to brigadier general and given command of the newly formed Cavalry Brigade with six regiments.
2: And speaking of Jeb Stuart, a third factor that contributed to the initial advantage of Confederate cavalry was the quality of its leadership. The exploits of Stuart and John Mosby in the East, and the raiding of Nathan Bedford Forrest and John Hunt Morgan in the West, Far outshone their northern opposites, and during the first half of the war, they generally established a distinct psychological advantage over their opponents. Until mid 1863, the Confederate cavalry engendered attention and respect from friends and foes alike. But by mid 1863, the Union cavalry had caught up, and for the remainder of the war, the Confederate cavalry's shortage of both horses and breech loading carbines and its subpar equipment, meant the advantage shifted to the northern horse soldiers. By the time Jeb Stuart met his end at Yellow Tavern, north of Richmond, in May 1864, the Confederate cavalry's best days were past.
0: But before we run too far ahead in the story, one interesting difference between the Union and Confederate cavalry was that the federal government provided a northern cavalryman a horse in the same way it provided a uniform and equipment. But in the South a Confederate cavalryman had to provide his own mount, for which he was paid a per diem allowance.
2: The Southern cavalry recruit's horse was valued at mustering, and if it was killed in action, the trooper was entitled to that amount in compensation. But the snag, from the soldier's point of view, was that no money was paid if the horse died from fatigue or sickness, and both were far more common occurrences than death in battle.
0: If a Confederate cavalryman's mount died from any cause or simply became worn out, he had to replace it, which often meant returning home and being absent from his unit for weeks or months. If he failed to acquire another horse, he was forced to transfer to the infantry or artillery. As the war progressed and horses fit for service as cavalry mounts became scarce in the South, this system proved to be a serious drain on Confederate cavalry manpower, which coupled with other factors already mentioned, like poor equipment and lack of breech-loading carbines, it meant the Southern Cavalry lost its edge.
2: So for the first half of the war, it was the Confederate cavalryman who was the acknowledged superior in horsemanship, daring, effectiveness, and leadership. But that edge gradually eroded, until by mid-1863, the Union Cavalry had caught up. Major Henry McClellan, Jeb Stuart's assistant adjutant general, wrote, quote, Two causes contributed steadily to diminish the numbers and efficiency of the Confederate cavalry. The government committed the fatal error of allowing the men to own their own horses, paying them a per diem for their use, and the muster valuation in cases where they were killed in action, but giving no compensation for horses lost by any other casualties of a campaign." Toward the close of the war, many were unable to remount themselves, and hundreds of such dismounted men were collected in a useless crowd which was dubbed Company Q. The second cause was the failure, or inability of the government, to supply good arms and accoutrements. Our breech-loading arms were nearly all captured from the enemy, and the same may be said of the best saddles and bridles. From these causes, which were beyond the power of any commander to remedy, There was a steady decline in the numbers of the Confederate cavalry, and, as compared with the Federal cavalry, a decline in efficiency.
0: At the war's beginning, the United States had five regiments of regular cavalry although most of these units were largely broken up and scattered around the western frontiers of the nation and seldom served in commands larger than a company. And then the leadership of these regulars was gutted when 104 of the 176 cavalry officers resigned to side with the Confederacy. With the coming of war, the rapid expansion of the Union cavalry with the influx of massive numbers of volunteers meant that in the early days of the conflict, many Northerners were still learning how to ride a horse, let alone how to fight on one. As we mentioned before, most Northerners were not horsemen, and records indicate that as few as 10 to 20 percent of Union cavalry enlistments were farmers. Another early and serious problem was scarcity of good horses suitable for the cavalry. There were plenty of draft horses in the north, but pulling a plow, wagon, or carriage doesn't produce the type of animal that cavalrymen need.
2: The problems associated with training green recruits and unbroken horses is well illustrated by this description by Captain George Vanderbilt in his book History of the Tenth New York Cavalry. Quote, "...such a rattling, jingling, jerking, scrabbling, cursing I never heard before." Green horses, some of them had never been ridden, turned round and round, backed against each other, jumped up or stood up like trained circus horses. Some of the boys had a pile in front of their saddles, and one in the rear, so high and heavy it took two men to saddle one horse, and two men to help the fellow into place. The horses sheered out, going sideways, pushing the well-disposed animals out of position, etc., some of the boys had never ridden anything since they galloped on a hobby horse, and they clasped their legs together, unconsciously sticking their spurs into their horses' sides." End quote. Vanderbilt then went on to describe what happened when the commanding officers set a cracking pace on the march: quote, "Blankets slipped from under saddles and hung from one corner. Saddles slipped back until they were on the rumps of the horses. Others turned and were on the underside of the animals. Horses running and kicking, tin pans, mess kettles, patent sheet-iron stoves the boys had seen advertised in illustrated papers and sold by the sutlers about as useful as a piano or a folding bed, flying through the air, and all I could do was to give a hasty glance to the rear and sing out at the top of my voice, "'Close up!' Poor boys, their eyes stuck out like those of maniacs. We went only a few miles— But the boys didn't all get up till noon."
0: Needless to say, in the early days of the war, such men were roughly handled by Confederate cavalrymen eager to demonstrate their superiority and keen to seize the Union horsemen's superior arms and equipment. In the first two years of the Civil War, the Federal Cavalry time and time again suffered badly at the hands of the enemy, and those repeated humiliations established in the minds of most in the North and South that Union horsemen were no match for their mounted opponents.
2: But from 1863 onward, the horsemanship, fighting skills, and morale of the horsemen in blue began to improve. Not until 1863 were the problems of equipping, provisioning, and mounting Union Cavalry solved by the War Department with the creation of the Cavalry Bureau. The establishment of a Cavalry Bureau was designed to improve the Federal Cavalry's field organization and logistical efficiency, and that latter aim was greatly assisted by the utilization of northern industrial and agricultural resources. Another significant factor in the Union Cavalry's growing level of success was the exchange of their single-shot carbines for Henry or Spencer repeating weapons. Those breech-loading, rifled carbines let Union horse soldiers fire many times faster than any muzzle loader
0: And then, whereas Union cavalry regiments had originally been parceled out to infantry commands, where they were subject to conflicting orders and purposes— By 1863, Union commanders started to mass their cavalry into larger formations and employ them effectively under energetic leaders. By June 1863, when 9,000 Federal horsemen engaged a like number of Confederates at Brandy Station, although Jeb Stuart retained possession of the battlefield, the daring determination and skill shown by Union troopers that day swelled their confidence, while giving Confederate pride a significant shock.
2: By the war's end in 1865, the Confederate cavalry forces that surrendered were but shadows of their former selves, while the Union cavalry had developed from a dispersed and ill-used force into a unified and immensely powerful combat arm that significantly contributed to the Northern victory.
1: On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: The Cavalry's tasks in the Civil War were fivefold. They were, one, reconnaissance and screening,
2: two, defensive delaying actions,
0: three, pursuit and harassment of a retreating enemy,
2: four, offensive action,
0: and five, long-distance raiding against enemy lines of communication.
2: Taking each of those roles separately, the first, reconnaissance and screening, were by far the most important. Reconnaissance involved obtaining information on the enemy's strength, locations, and intentions. Screening was the prevention of the enemy from securing that same information about your forces. The tactics of reconnaissance were based on patrolling, on scouting, on exploring roads and tracks and towns and villages. Patrols covered wide areas and often needed the backup of larger bodies of cavalry to force a way through the enemy's screen. Cavalry screens were the reverse side of the reconnaissance coin, Mounted formations often had both roles, probing the enemy lines for information, and at the same time, blocking or screening the enemy's efforts to gain intelligence.
0: Next, defensive delaying actions is nowhere better illustrated than the stand made by Buford's Union cavalry on the first day of battle at Gettysburg. But it's important to understand why Buford's horsemen fought dismounted that day, That's because mounted cavalrymen are at a serious disadvantage when acting on the defensive. It's virtually impossible to aim properly sitting on a horse. Reloading is awkward, and a mounted man provides a large target to any nearby infantrymen. Cavalry were meant to attack. To stand on the defensive was to surrender the advantages of movement and momentum. The answer to this problem was to fight defensively while dismounted, and to move and act offensively while mounted.
2: This meant arming and training cavalrymen to carry out these tactics. The breech-loading carbine, combined with the revolver and saber, were essential elements of the formula for successful delaying actions. As happened at Gettysburg, every fourth Union cavalryman stayed back and held his comrades' horses, while the dismounted troopers moved forward and took up a defensive position, firing upon the advancing enemy with their breech-loading rifled carbines. Using such tactics didn't necessarily turn the cavalrymen into nothing more than mounted infantrymen, since a horseman retained his attacking role with his ability to charge and wield his saber and fire his revolver in close combat.
0: The third role of cavalry in the Civil War was the pursuit and harassment of a retreating enemy. An army in retreat needs cavalry to form rear guards to delay or disperse its pursuers and to escort its supply train of vulnerable wagons. Conversely, the pursuer needs to make maximum use of his cavalry to intercept, cut off, harass, and attack his retreating enemy. It is most often the case that only a successful pursuit, relentlessly pressed, can bring about the complete destruction of a beaten army.
2: Next is offensive action, which Napoleon would have put at the top of his list of cavalry's tasks, particularly with his veteran heavy cavalry, with their big horses and wearing their helmets and body armor, they were the emperor's shock force on the battlefield, and they delighted in smashing enemy horse and infantry formations. But in the Civil War, and especially by 1863, offensive action in terms of the old-fashioned, saber-swinging cavalry charge had slipped well down the list of a mounted force's roles. In the Civil War, the lack of a true cavalry tradition in the United States, the nature of the terrain on most Civil War battlefields, the improvement in weaponry, all meant it was very difficult to gain significant results from a cavalry charge that was unsupported by the other two combat arms, that is, infantry and artillery. Without that support, horsemen were vulnerable to flank attacks or a well timed counterstroke when they were disorganized and on blown horses. Charges were also handicapped by the nature of the terrain on most Civil War battlefields, where stone walls, wooden fences, ditches, or woodlots hampered a mounted force's ability to make cavalry charges in the grand European style. Between 1861 and 1865, Cavalry versus cavalry charges were few and far between, although horsemen could and did take the offensive on foot as well as mounted when terrain and circumstances permitted.
0: And then last on the list of cavalry's duties in the Civil War are long-distance strategic raids deep into enemy territory and across the enemy's lines of communication. For the first two years of the war, it was the Confederates who mainly carried out large-scale cavalry raids. Apart from Jeb Stuart and his celebrated rides that circled completely around the main Union Army in the East, Nathan Bedford Forrest and John Hunt Morgan in the West were probably the most famous rebel raiders. Forrest raiding in Tennessee in 1862 caused enough mayhem to tie down two entire federal infantry divisions protecting vulnerable rail lines. Later in the war, his devastating success against Union forces led Sherman to exclaim in frustration, That devil forest must be hunted down and killed if it costs 10,000 lives and bankrupts the federal treasury.
2: By 1863, a more competent and confident Union cavalry force had also taken up strategic raiding. The most successful example probably being Benjamin Grierson's raid in conjunction with Ulysses S. Grant's campaign to capture Vicksburg in 1863. Grierson's raid was a masterpiece. With 1,700 men, he rode 600 miles from Tennessee through Mississippi to Louisiana, wrecking Southern Railroad and telegraph lines along the way and destroying massive amounts of supplies, weapons, and ammunition. But more importantly, the raid confused Confederate commanders and distracted them while Grant's army crossed the Mississippi River below Vicksburg. All of that was accomplished by Grierson at a cost of three killed seven wounded, and nine missing. Grant said of it, It has been one of the most brilliant cavalry exploits of the war and will be handed down in history as an example to be imitated.
0: So there you have the five roles or tasks of Civil War Cavalry. They were 1. Reconnaissance and screening.
2: 2. Defensive delaying actions.
0: 3. Pursuit and harassment of a retreating enemy.
2: 4. Offensive action
0: and 5. Long-Distance Raiding Against Enemy Lines of Communication.
2: The Union cavalryman was the best armed of all the branches of service, and the most useful cavalry weapon was the carbine. The first carbines were essentially shortened versions of the long-barreled muskets of the day, making them easier to handle from horseback and easier to stow in a saddle holster, and less weight meant they could be fired with one hand if necessary. While the first carbines were still single-shot, muzzle-loading weapons, these were eventually replaced with breech-loaders, while the best of those had a multiple-shot capability. After the Spencer Repeating Carbine began to become available to Union Mounted Forces in mid-1863, it became the most effective small arm of the Civil War with over 95,000 being purchased by the federal government. The Spencer had a 22-inch barrel, used the 52 caliber number 56 copper rimfire cartridge, and combined rapid breech loading with multi-shot capability. The weapon was loaded via a 7-round tubular magazine housed in the buttstock and rounds fed into the breech by cranking down the trigger guard lever. Of the firepower advantage Spencer repeating carbines gave to Union Cavalry, a northern trooper would say, I think the Johnnies are getting rattled. They are afraid of our repeating rifles. They say we are not fair, that we have guns that we load up on Sunday and shoot all the rest of the week.
0: The second most popular weapon with a Union Cavalryman after his breech-loading carbine was the revolver carried in a belt holster. With its rapid rate of fire, many cavalrymen considered the revolver to be the ideal weapon for use in a close-quarter melee. There were many varieties, but the most common were the six-shot models made by the Colt Firearms Company. The 1860 Colt six-shot single-action percussion revolver came in two calibers. The heavier forty-four was the Army model and was popular for the powerful punch it delivered and was much sought after by Confederate horsemen. The lighter 36 caliber version was often the preferred sidearm of officers and was called the Navy Colt. Both versions fired paper-wrapped cartridges inserted into the cylinders and rammed with an attached loading lever that swung beneath the barrel. Percussion caps were placed on each nipple behind each cartridge.
2: After the Colt, the next favorite revolver was the Remington, which also came in Army and Navy versions. Its increasing popularity as the war progressed was due to the ease with which the cylinder could be removed from the gun, since this allowed for quicker reloading with spare cylinders. There was also the question of cost, since a Colt was sold to the government for $25, while the Remington was $12. And then every mounted Union trooper had his saber, either the more common Model 1840 heavy saber, known as the wristbreaker, or the similar but lighter 1860 version. Both were based on an earlier French model, featuring a slightly curved blade, brass handguard, and leather handgrip bound with twisted wire, with a leather saber knot attached to the guard that was wound round the wrist in action to prevent its being dropped. Scabbards were of iron and sometimes covered with leather or similar material. While it did happen on occasion, traditional close combat with sabers was something of a rarity during the Civil War, and when such cavalry versus cavalry clashes did take place, it was the revolver that caused the most serious wounds. By mid-1863, cavalry of both sides expected to fight dismounted as often as not, so many troopers took to attaching their sabers to their saddles so they wouldn't be hampered by them when operating on foot.
0: Southern cavalry had a surprising mix of muskets, rifles, and carbines. Most Confederate cavalrymen in the East used single-shot, muzzle-loading carbines that were cut-down versions of various rifle muskets. However, the most sought-after weapon was the breech-loading sharps carbine with which many of their Yankee enemies were armed. Unlike the Spencer with its copper rim fire cartridges, the Sharps fired linen cartridges, which, unlike the metal-rimmed ones, could be manufactured in the South. This meant most Rebel Sharps were captured ones, although the South did attempt to produce their own copy, the Richmond Sharps. It was not a success, and only about 5,000 were manufactured. General Lee described it as, quote, so defective as to be demoralizing to our men, end quote.
2: A number of Confederate horsemen shunned muzzle-loading muskets or carbines in favor of the double-barreled, sawed-off shotgun. Its spread of shot made it difficult to miss, and it was devastatingly lethal at close range. And then the revolver was a popular, indeed essential weapon for all Confederate mounted troops, many of whom carried several stuck in their belts. The South did manufacture some of their own revolvers, although probably fewer than 10,000 were produced during the entire war. As mentioned before, the Union Cavalry's Colt and Remington revolvers were prizes much sought after by Confederate horsemen. But even at close range, it requires considerable skill to shoot accurately with a revolver, and this is particularly so when mounted on a horse. With the big caliber weapons used in the Civil War, there was considerable kick, with a revolver tending to jump after each shot. William Quantrill, who led a notorious band of Confederate bushwhackers in Missouri and Kansas, discovered that by reducing the powder charge in their cartridges by half, they could eliminate much of the kick, thereby increasing accuracy, but without making any appreciable sacrifice in hitting power at close range. All of these rebel guerrillas prided themselves on their shooting ability and constantly practiced with their revolvers to improve it.
0: And then as for the basic Confederate saber, it was a somewhat crude copy of the model 1840 U.S. Army weapon, often with a brass or leather scabbard rather than an iron one. Despite the fact that Jeb Stuart had a liking for the saber and its use, there was considerable skepticism among the Southern cavalry about the usefulness of sabers in action, with the majority regarding them as an unnecessary encumbrance. John Mosby, the renowned Confederate partisan ranger leader, had this to say on the subject. Quote, we had been furnished with sabers before we left Abingdon, but the only real use I ever heard of their being put to was to hold a piece of meat over the fire for frying. I dragged one through the first year, but when I became a commander, I discarded it. The saber is of no use against gunpowder.
2: The last topic we wanted to cover in this cavalry episode is the Confederate partisan rangers. These irregular bands of mounted troops were authorized by the Confederate government to operate behind enemy lines in territory that had been overrun by Union forces. One of the best organized and disciplined ranger units was that commanded by John Singleton Mosby in Virginia. But Mosby's unit was something of an exception as many partisan rangers were little more than bandits. They were usually a law unto themselves and inclined to raid friend and foe alike.
0: These units were raised to operate in their home states, and this, together with their loose discipline and tenuous overall control, attracted many recruits who saw such bands as a splendid way to fight from home and gain plenty of loot. The Confederate authorities belatedly sought either to convert the partisan Rangers to regular cavalry or to disband them. All such units were officially disbanded in April 1864, and the men ordered to form regular cavalry units. Many avoided this fate and continued operating, one of which was Mosby's 43rd Virginia Battalion, which was not disbanded until April 1865.
2: So now we've covered cavalry as well as infantry, and next week we'll get to the big guns, the artillery. And what we're trying to do with these episodes is put up a framework, just a framework for now, that we can fill in with more detail during the course of the podcast as we cover the specific battles and whatnot. We just wanted you to have some idea of how infantry works, and cavalry works, and artillery works before we started to get to the major battles. Does that make sense? Okay, so having said that...
0: That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is a back issue of North and South magazine. Volume 2, number 2 of North and South magazine was a cavalry special. Each article in that issue was devoted to a discussion of Union and Confederate cavalry.
2: I think we mentioned once before on the podcast that North and South ceased publication earlier this year, so you can't just contact them anymore to get back issues. Now you have to hunt for them in other ways, which isn't that hard on the internet, of course. But anyway, we also wanted to mention that Osprey, and some of you may be familiar with Osprey Publishing's military history books, but Osprey actually has two books on this episode's topic. One book covers Union Cavalry and the other covers Confederate Cavalry. But they're really kind of not so great in a lot of ways. So they aren't going to be official book recommendations from us. But we did just want to put them on the table with reservations in case you wanted to check them out.
0: As always, you can find all of our official book recommendations at the podcast website which is www.civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com.
2: All right. So far as the iTunes slash bonus episode challenge, we have some good news and we have some bad news. Which would you like first?
0: The bad news.
2: Well, the bad news is that you guys fell short of the 50 new five-star ratings and or reviews. And it was close. So close. Like just three or four short close. But as we all know, close only counts...
0: In horseshoes and hand grenades.
2: Exactly. So the bad news is we won't be releasing the bonus episode tomorrow.
0: But then the good news is that we sincerely appreciate the five-star ratings and reviews that y'all did give us. And so on the actual first anniversary of the podcast launch, November 18th, We will release that bonus episode for y'all.
2: So watch for that bonus episode on Monday the 18th. And then probably this Thursday, we're going to release a special mini episode on book recommendations for the Gettysburg Address. Now, as many of you are no doubt aware, this month, November 2013, we'll see the 150th anniversary of Lincoln giving that historic address. And we wanted to provide you guys with some books to check out if you wanted to read up on it. So we'll plan on having that Gettysburg Address Book Recommendations mini-episode out to you Thursday of this week.
0: And then as we wrap things up, we wanted to be sure to thank Peter R., Daniel B., and Robert T. for their donations this past week. Thanks, y'all.
2: And we always appreciate the use of Spiritwood Music's song, Midnight on the Water which is the music you hear at the beginning and end of each episode. And then, last but not least, thanks to each of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, to 1865, a history podcast. We hope you'll join us again next time, but until then, take care.
0: Thanks, everyone. Bye.